A retooled Safety Act is passed by the General Assembly. And I'll talk with Cranes contributor Judith Crown, who wrote in this month's Cranes Forum about Michigan Avenue, where retail occupancy is way down. And some say it's time to reimagine what else the area might become. There's a really interesting proposal to build a bridge from Oak Street to Oak Street Beach, because there's a feeling that so much of the action moved south in recent years. The Urban Land Institute suggested a design competition to do something very architecturally interesting. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, December 5th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. I'm joined by Cranes contributor Judith Crown, who wrote in this month's Cranes Forum about Michigan Avenue. So, Retail occupancy is way down, and some say that it's time to kind of reimagine what what Michigan Avenue really is. It's kind of been this retail spot for such a long time. But what what did you learn in in reporting? What did you what did you hear about this area? The pandemic was was really rough on on the retailers, and there was that looting wave in the summer of 2020. But problems were really cropping up in the years before because of online shopping. The retailers on Michigan Avenue want much smaller spaces. They don't need four stories in in a space on Michigan Avenue, and and rents have been going up. What they can do is really shrink their stores and have much less inventory. If they don't have my size and color, they'll send it to me. So they need much less space than they used to take. And some of them don't even want to be on Michigan Avenue anymore. If they're an online retailer and know their customers are in Lincoln Park or Lakeview, they'd be just as happy to be up there or in Wrigleyville. So things were already changing quite a bit. Probably the biggest issue is just the sameness of the shops on Michigan Avenue, right? You can go to them at Old Orchard. You can go to them in Oak Brook and just about any any mall in the United States. There's nothing really special or unique that pulls you down to Michigan Avenue anymore. Mm. There was a, a detail in your reporting that really stood out that I, th- I think is important to highlight, and that's that as of pre-pandemic and around 2019, that area was the single biggest contributor of sales tax revenue in Cook County. That really kind of points to how dire that is, that, that retail vacancy is so high there right now. Exactly. And it's still the spot that you think of when you think of why would I go to Chicago? I mean, that's what draws in leisure travelers and business meetings and conventions because they know that it is an exciting place, but it's just lost quite a bit of that luster. There are still some bright spots like the Starbucks roastery um, is doing gangbusters. I mean, the lines go out the door. There's four stories of, of different coffee bars and sweets and 
Savories, um, the Apple Store does well. The 900 North Michigan Mall is is almost completely leased. I think the the success of Starbucks and Apple shows that people want a a transaction, something that's interactive, and not just to go into a store and and buy stuff anymore. Which which kind of leads to this idea that some stakeholders have been floating around about changing the focus of Michigan Avenue to be more about experiential sort of things and entertainment and food, which once you hear it, you think, oh, that's that's a great idea. Of course, people would be all over that. But that's a pretty big transition to move it away from that that kind of retail. What's involved in that? It can't just be a matter of build it and they will come. That seems like that would be a long transition. Right. Restaurants are a little tough because it's hard to, for them to make money at street level. And also, it's 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 hard to vent. You'll, you'll find a lot of the restaurants on Michigan Avenue higher up so they can vent their cooking, uh, which is right. sort of a minor technical point, but still an issue. But there's definitely a push. Maybe there could be more food trucks. Maybe there's a way to you know make it easier just to grab something on Michigan Avenue, not make it a big formal sit down. And of course, you can always open restaurants on the side streets. So there could definitely be demand for more food, as well as entertainment. There's an interactive Harry Potter show right now, and it's going to go through early 2023. That's in the former Macy space. And there's the Museum of Ice Cream, which opened in the Tribune Tower. So they're beginning to be a few things. It's still pretty quiet. It's been such a shopping and office strip for so long. Things get really quiet around five o'clock in the evening. And if you do come down for something like the Looking Glass Theater is there, the top of the 875 building, which is known as the Hancock Center, but it's no longer Hancock. But those are open late. And if you come out, there's really no place to go. So it will really take some creativity. There is a group of retailers and stakeholders in the avenue trying to get together to develop plans and and schematics to see what it what could look like. Yeah, I think the uh, the kind of the experiential stuff like the, the the ice cream museum, you know, and we've seen more and more of that, like the Wonder Museum popping up in another part of town that's kind of less about, you know, just walking through a museum and more about experiencing a, a space really. Exactly. Exactly. But then you have kind of places like the former Gap space that that was occupied. It's, it feels like there's a couple of retail outliers. And that's an interesting example. So Gap left um, during the pandemic, but they were able to fill that space with Aritzia, which is taking all of the Gap space. Yeah, which is huge. Which is huge, but I feel they're a little bit of an outlier (laughs) in that we think uh, retailers want smaller spaces. But again, it's all in the creativity and what you're offering and can you do something different There's definitely some suggestions on trying pop-up stores. We know there's interest in more artsy, artsy, craftsy places where you do get the one of a kind. The trouble is if you're just a boutique owner, can I afford Michigan Avenue? I mean, that's the the rents are high. So that's been the land of Burberry and coach, but um, you know, maybe I can get some help from landlords or from some grants or small business types of incentives to get me going. And and a pop-up store isn't a long-term commitment. So you, you can see how it goes. There are some pop-ups that just opened in the Wrigley building run by some consulates. Uh, one is Argentina. 
They're selling uh, food and crafts from Argentina. And there's one by the Nordic nations. I think five Nordic nations have gotten together for a similar type of shop. And it's open-ended as to how long they'll be open through the holidays or beyond. I think it's important, though, to, to really underscore that this was not all pandemic, that e-commerce was already building and already starting to impact um, uh, brick-and-mortar retailers. It seems like the pandemic, as with many things, just kind of pushed it forward and accelerated it. Exactly. There was a report from the Urban Land Institute, which has thrown out a bunch of interesting ideas, and they pointed out some infrastructure changes are needed. Those famous planters take up half of the sidewalk on Michigan Avenue, and they're beautiful to look at, you know, tulips in the spring and mums in the fall, but they take up a lot of room and everything else is, they call it, a, it's just a people superhighway moving up and down the avenue. And what if there was a place to stop and linger and smell those flowers or, or just interact and watch people go by? So there's talk talk of maybe we take out some planners and put in some benches and tables. And what if some of those plazas, like the one at 401 North Michigan or near Water Tower, could be a place for art installations or some performances, whether they're impromptu or scheduled. They like to bring just that kind of uh, unexpected activity to the avenue as well. I hadn't even thought about the planters. You're right. It does take up a lot of sidewalk there. That's a huge space. So 401, is that that's Pioneer Court, right next to the Tribune? Yeah, that's the one just right, just south of the Tribune. In fact, there's another really interesting proposal to build a bridge from Oak Street to Oak Street Beach, because there's a feeling that so much of the action moved south in recent years, really, since Nordstrom opened um, around 2000, early 2000, and the Riverwalk and the Apple Store. So there's much more action south. So they'd love to sort of bring a little more interest back up north. So a bridge connecting Oak Street to the beach could be really cool. The Urban Land Institute suggested a design competition to do something very architecturally interesting. And it would be tied into the renovation of DuSable Lakeshore Drive, which has been on the drawing boards for years and years. But hopefully they capitalize on some federal infrastructure dollars um, that would make something like this possible that normally wouldn't have been, you know, even imaginable. Right. So what, what kind of timeline would, would something like that have? It's going to take a while yeah. <laughs> to, to reimagine it. There's a task force uh, that, of stakeholders to come up with some drawings and schematics and they, they have to agree. And that's, I don't know if they're all going to agree on the same things. And they designated the area as a special service area, which means you can levy some additional taxes. What should we do with that? And then there's a proposal for an additional tax. So they all have to agree on how to use these funds. And of course, crime is number one. Uh, we haven't talked about that, but because of that that looting wave and that property destruction is still on everyone's mind. And even though the looting has gone away, crime is surprisingly persistent in that district, the five mile area around Michigan Avenue. There's still carjackings and, and thefts. You know, the, the merchants say, you know, we have to just get rid of that perception. And even though the streets were full this summer, but there's, there's still that, that um, persistent worry that, that lingers and maybe keeping people away. Yeah, I was going to say there, there's kind of two tracks here. There's, 
there's actual crime data and there's also the perception of crime. Exactly. And that perception can can be very pervasive and, and long lasting far after, you know, crime crime, you know, starts to go down. So many stories that meet in the middle here, right? There's the real estate story. There's this economic story of shifting behavior from shoppers. There's a political story. There's a civic story. There's just kind of all these different stories that unfold right here at Michigan Avenue that's so interesting. What will you be watching most maybe just in the next few months or over the next year? We'll definitely want to watch the crime data and see that continues to go down and what kinds of things they're adding. There've been suggestions just to have more of a police presence, even police on foot or on horseback. And then will there be some more interesting retailers that give it a whirl? Uh, There've been suggestions of, uh, can I get an exclusive jean jacket embroidered with my name on it? You know, something that I can only get on Michigan Avenue. Will some landlords and retailers be able to kind of team up to try something new and not just go by the same brand names. The landlords are in a dilemma right now because the rents were so high and now there's no more retailers willing to pay those. So can they work out with their lenders some new accommodations, You know, give the retailers a chance to get in there and maybe share the upside potential if that comes around? So there's, there's sort of a, a, a gridlock right now until, until they sort of figure that economic part out, that retail part. And, and is there any movement around maybe dividing up some of those bigger spaces to make multiple small spaces out of them? Right. I mean, there's a lot of space. Just think of Water Tower alone is 50% lease. That Macy space is absolutely huge. And that's why they have to get beyond just retail shops and have some more entertainment, interactive types of activities. One of them said, you know, this is not about going back to 2016, even when the street was doing well, but what are we going to look like in 2026? We have to really break with the past. Yeah, and just kind of change the focus of, of what that area is. Well, very interesting. I'm sure not the last time we will be discussing this by any means, but but thank you so much for checking in today. You bet. Coming up, Illinois' public health departments will get a boost from federal funding. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to help communities facing an elevated need right now. Decades-high inflation is making it even harder for our neighbors to afford groceries, and food insecurity is above pre-pandemic levels. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Let's rise to the challenge, Chicago. Your neighbor is hungry. Give what you can to the Greater Chicago Food Depository at chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. On Thursday evening, the Illinois State House passed a bill that changed key provisions of the controversial safety criminal justice reform law, sending the bill to Governor J.B. Pritzker. The House voted 71 to 40 along party lines to approve the changes, which had passed the state Senate by a similarly partisan 38 to 17 vote earlier in the day. 
Crane's political columnist Greg Hines noted of the bill that it's a measure that, among other things, expands the type of offenses subject to pretrial confinement and makes it clear that trespassers can still be arrested. Many Republican state lawmakers, Hines noted, called the changes insufficient. But in debate in the Senate earlier in the day, Democrats said the bill clarifies the original legislation but remains true to its spirit, which was intended to sharply cut back on the confinement of people accused of minor offenses, many of whom are people who cannot make bail while wealthier, often white, suspects walk free. Hines also reported that in other action, the Senate approved a bill enacting much of a legislative deal in which Illinois' Unemployment Trust Fund will get $1.8 billion from the state, completely erasing its debt. But employers will have to pay taxes on a wider wage base. The House is expected to take up the bill in its January lame duck session. In other General Assembly news, the body has given final approval to a bill to boost the state's incentives for electric vehicle makers and parts suppliers, an action that officials hope will finally put the state in the game in a fast-growing national industry. Under a measure approved by the House Thursday evening and sent to the governor, both the amount and length of payroll tax credits for eligible employers will be increased lasting as long as 30 years. Other provisions would loosen the definition of an EV worker and appear to be aimed at existing automakers in Illinois, especially Stellantis and Ford. Both have huge conventional auto assembly plants in Illinois, in downstate Belvedere and on Chicago's south side that could be converted to EV production, but as Heinz also noted, likely only after years of preparation. Illinois Manufacturers Association President Mark Densler told Cranes that he believes that the new law will help attract both large production facilities and small supply chain firms. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago appointed Austin Goolsbee, an economist and former advisor to President Barack Obama, as its new president to replace Charles Evans, who retires in January after 15 years leading the Chicago Fed. Goolsbee, who is currently a professor of economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, will start on January 9th, the Chicago Fed said in an emailed statement. Goolsbee, a member of Crane's 40 Under 40 Class of 2006, will hold a vote on policy decisions undertaken by the central bank's interest rate-setting Federal Open Market Committee in 2023, as it seeks to slow and eventually stop the monetary tightening campaign it launched this year. The Chicago Fed president has somewhat more influence on Federal Open Market Committee decisions because it holds a vote every other year, whereas presidents of most other reserve banks only rotate into the annual voting panel once every three years. Crane's healthcare reporter Katherine Davis reported recently that Illinois' public health departments are receiving a funding infusion from the federal government, a move aimed at strengthening the state's public health workforce and infrastructure. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is providing $86 million to the Illinois Department of Public Health through the American Rescue Plan Act, according to a statement from the governor's office and IDPH. Some of those funds will be shared with other local health departments in Illinois. Davis noted in reporting that Chicago's Department of Public Health got its own allotment as well, of $28 million. The money will be used to recruit, retain, and train public health workers like epidemiologists, contact tracers, lab scientists, community health workers, and data analysts. The grant is intended to address public health needs in economically depressed areas. 
And the funding comes at a time when many public health departments, including Chicago's, are preparing for a drop in the federal assistance that was abundant during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Davis also reported that Chicago's health department budget topped $1 billion in 2022, thanks to more than $775 million in federal grant money funneled into the agency to address the pandemic. But in 2023, as some of those grants expire, CDPH's budget is slated to shrink 7% to just under $964 million, according to its proposed budget. But now the agency is facing an especially steep funding cliff over the next few years, with about 75% of its budget set to disappear by 2026. Throughout the pandemic, Davis also noted, public health departments have played an instrumental role in tracking community COVID cases, distributing vaccines, and assisting mayors and governors in making COVID transmission mitigation policy. Aside from responding to disease outbreaks, public health departments also help ensure a community's food and water are safe and provide child and maternal health care. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Judith Crown. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.